You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. All right, so now we begin uh, sermon number four in a four-part series, Four Great Truths About Who God Is. You know, it wasn't too many years ago, it was right before covid um, that I was standing next to a soccer field that Luke was playing on, my son, and uh, they were drubbing the other team. I mean, they were absolutely just putting it on them pretty good. And the coach on the other team was one of those very vocal guys, right? He wasn't sitting there quietly, you know, admonishing from the sidelines. He was yelling at the refs. He was yelling at parents that weren't saying the right things. He was yelling at our players. He was yelling at his players. But one of his players had kind of messed up, and um, he shouted out to him a few minutes later, now's your chance to redeem yourself. Get out there and show me that the name on the back of your jersey means something. And it, it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. Where did this man get these religious words to admonish a soccer player to get out there and play better? You now have the chance to redeem yourself. And you know what I, what we both know, what he meant by that was, you screwed up, but now you can do good. And if you try hard enough, you can what? Redeem yourself. You can earn something because the name on the back of your jersey doesn't want to get off the field with the terrible play that you made a minute ago. But if you get out there and do something good, you can redeem your name. Right? That this is this thing that we're all born with that quietly haunts us and lives inside of us. That we are on a performance track and that we have to work to prove ourselves somehow. That we know we're not doing very well in front of the God who's created us. We've got some pluses, but we've got some minuses. And we're scared to death that if we were really known and fully known, that we would be not only unloved, but that we would be rejected, completely rejected because we're not doing very well. That we need to get out there and we need to try harder. We need to be better. We know we should be better. We know that we ought to do and be a better person than we are. And so we're trying. We forever have this weariness of soul that feels like it's not doing enough and needs to try harder. Or just hide, candidly. Cover up. Hide the things you don't want anybody to see and push forward the best parts of your resume. Push forward the best uh, ostrich you've got, or not ostrich, uh, uh, peacocking that you can. You, you can pull out your best feather and show it off. You've got this one thing that you're pretty proud of. You're a good cook. You're a good athlete. You're smart. You make a lot of money. And so every time the conversation opens up, you try to push forward what you think might be impressive. It's exhausting. You ever met somebody who is free? You ever met somebody that really is comfortable in their own skin and envied them for it? Like, where the heck did you get that? That you are so at ease with who you are that you're not even trying to be impressive? See, it's my conviction that only God can give us true freedom in Jesus. And when you realize that God is not just glorious, and that God is not just good, and that God is not just 
all, all these other things, you start to realize God is gracious, and because God is gracious, I don't have to prove myself to God. And once that settles on your soul and you own that because you have experienced that God is gracious and you don't have to perform anymore, you get to exhale deeply. And you don't have to perform for people and you don't have to perform what's best. Maybe it's for yourself. You're no longer looking and going, man, I wish I wasn't who I am. If God is gracious and I don't have to prove myself in front of the, the maker and creator of all things, then I can now take it easy, I can rest, I can exhale, I can be at ease with myself and with people. And listen, if you have experienced that, if you know the goodness and the grace of God, the glory of God, the kindness of God, when it settles on you, you are given a level of exhale and freedom that people will recognize in you. They'll say, my gosh, I don't know what it is about that person, but they just seem at ease. They seem intentional, purposeful. They don't seem to care that much what I think of them. And that can be really nice to be around somebody who's not fighting to impress you or improve, you know, make you like them. They don't seem to need anything. They're just at ease and at home in their own self. Because why? Well, it isn't because of how much money they made. That's a pretense. It isn't because they're big and muscular or super handsome or pretty. It's not that. See, those things are just fig leaves that will fall off of you at any given moment. There's always somebody prettier. There's always somebody richer, right? But when God gives you this, it's an enormous blessing. Well, where would we find in the scriptures a great example of that? Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and you will see probably the great example of this in all of scripture. And every now and then... I'll meet somebody that says, well, I don't know, man. The God in the Old Testament kind of freaks me out. He seems angry all the time. I'm a, I'm a New Testament kind of person. My thought is, you probably haven't read, enough, you haven't read enough New Testament. I can show you a God that will scare you in the New Testament, I promise you. But I can also show you a God of great mercy and kindness and goodness and grace in the Old Testament. And I'd point up many places, but I'd certainly point to 2 Samuel chapter 9. The context of this is that David, the shepherd boy who has now become king after many valleys, many uh, seasons of brokenness in his life, and many victories, he is now the unified king of Israel, sitting on his throne. This is about 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem, for the sake of context. This is a long time ago. And, and as we look at this chapter, I want to give you a roadmap for where we're going today. Chapter uh, 9 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, is a, a man who is reflecting on the grace of God. He's reminiscing about the grace of God. And then in verses 2 through 8, you'll see him reflecting not only on the grace of God, but that God saves by grace. God saves by grace. It's not about merit. It's not about works. God saves by grace. And here's the beautiful thing about verses 2 through 8. Once you realize that you have been saved by grace, it's only a matter of time before you become a vessel of grace. You can't realize this truth about God saving by grace and not soon become one who is brimming and overflowing with grace. And then verses 9 through 13, we see that God sustains by grace. 
Okay, so that's the roadmap of where we're going today. We've done a lot of praying, but I'm going to pray one more time because I want you to hear this, friends. You are the beloved children of God. You are his beloved possession. You are his child. You are loved by God. He wants to speak to you this morning. He has the capacity to speak to you this morning. When the church gathers around the word of God and the, the truth of God, God meets with the church. God speaks to the people of the church. Because church is not a building and church is not an event that happens on Sunday morning. Church is a people. And that's us. And as we come together around the word of God, he knows your story. As Chris said, he's writing your story. But also he knows what you're afraid of. He knows what is broken in you. And he wants to speak to you this morning. So I just want you to, with anticipation, listen for the truth that God wants to say to you, knowing what you're walking through at this very season of your life. And if you're willing, some of you will feel awkward about this, so I'll just leave this to you. But as I pray for you, will you just lay your hands open in front of you, almost as if to receive from God, a willingness to receive from God what he's about to give. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I just want to praise you and thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for what you're currently doing. God, I feel so outmatched by what you've uh, called me to do today, to, to preach the truth and to get out of the way and let the truth that you have for your people be received by them. That's bigger than what I can do with my mind and with my words Lord God, that requires your spirit to be at work through the word of God. And so God, I ask you, open the hearts and minds of your people. Let them hear your good voice today. And let them have deep exhale of heart and mind and body today as they realize that you are a God who is gracious. And because of that, we don't have to prove ourselves. We need to rest because Jesus has finished the work for us. Speak to us, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 9 says these words. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might sh may show the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul. His name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Let's stop for just a moment right there and reflect on what is happening. David had many years behind him. He had great victories, but he also had terrible defeats. Defeats, failures of faith that he'd walked through very many dark and lonely valleys of life. And he, many years before, had defeated Goliath, the giant, when it really should have been Saul out on that battlefield facing that giant for his nation. But it was David who went out there, a shepherd boy. And as David took on all of the weights and the concerns of the whole nation onto that battlefield, he won for the nation of Israel, not just for himself, but for the whole nation. All of their hopes and dreams, dreams were riding on him, and he went out there and he won because he won, they won. And there was a guy that was watching that day. His name was Jonathan. He was the son of Saul, the current king. And as Jonathan, the heir to the throne, 
saw David go out onto that field and face Goliath and win, Jonathan, the very next chapter, shows that he laid down his sword, he laid down his royal uh, cloak, he laid down everything. The future king of Israel said, not me, but you. And David and Jonathan became best friends at that time. They loved each other as best friends. And I have a feeling that as we get to chapter 9 here of 2 Samuel, this is many years later, David is now sitting on the throne of Israel. He's enjoying the peace and the prosperity and the goodness of God. And he's reflecting on his friend Jonathan, missing Jonathan. Not knowing that Jonathan even had a son. 2 Samuel chapter 4 tells the story of a son of Jonathan that David didn't know about. And so as David sits on that throne and he longs for his old friend Jonathan, he says, is there yet anybody left in his house? I mean, could we find a servant? Could we find a cousin? Could we find anybody of his house? Because I want to show him the kindness of God. Now, this is a beautiful and rich truth, and I want to just pause for a moment and ask you to consider what David is saying. God, I want you to use me to show kindness. Your love, load me down with it, and I'll just give it out to your people. That's what he's asking. And so they call for the only servant that they knew, a man named Ziba, and said, Ziba, is there anyone left? Anyone? And he says right here, I am your servant. And then he says, Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. The king said, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Stop there for a moment. Ziba says, yeah, there's, there's one, but he's crippled and he's hiding. You can imagine that if you are the former heir to the throne and your grandfather and father die, it's time to hide. Being the former heir to the throne when you are no longer the heir in any generation would be dangerous. It's, it's hazardous to his health. And so he is hiding. He is crippled. Leave him alone. There's one guy, but he's gone to a place called Lodebar. Lodebar, maybe you've heard this before. If you've ever heard this sermon from this text, you know that Lodebar means no grassland. So you're in Jerusalem. You're in a place that's very vibrant, very well watered and all of that. He's in a place called Lodebar, no grassland. Because he's hiding to save his life. 2 Samuel chapter 4 tells of the day that his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan fell in battle. That a nurse gathered up the five-year-old Mephibosheth and as she was running to save his life, she tripped and fell. And as she fell, both of his feet were broken. And it's not like they could say, well, let's take him to the local hospital. And someone say, oh my, this is Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. Can't take him in for that. You gotta hide him. Otherwise, he's dead. And maybe he's got broken feet. Maybe he has to live in low day bar, but at least he's alive. Right? He can hide there and he can live there. I'll bet the diet's not terribly great. I'll bet you don't find the best of foods in low day bar. If you can't grow grass, you can't grow anything. But he's alive. He's hiding. 
scared to death. And probably all of his life, he's been told something like this. All the other families in that area, any of them that were around, would say, well, three times a year we go to Jerusalem to eat and to celebrate like Passover, but we can't go. Why can't we go? Because you're the former heir to the throne. Your grandfather was Saul. Your father is Jonathan. You can't go there. You're going to need to stay in Lodebar. Stay in the place where it's barren, where it's dry and high, but live it's not much of a life, but at least you can live. You can't go. And so there he is, hoping to never be found. And life is miserable, but he's alive. Until this. Ziba said he's there. Where has he been hiding? It says that he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. That wouldn't mean much to us unless we did a little research. That happens to be... A lady named Bathsheba, that's her house, that's her hometown. Bathsheba is now the wife of David. Another story for a different time. He's hiding there in Bathsheba's home and in her hometown. And Ziba said uh, to the king, there is one, pardon me, uh, let's keep going. And David says, uh, where is he? And Ziba said, he's in this house. And the king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Let's just stop for a moment. <laughs> Picture this. Try to leave this room with me, okay? If you are Mephibosheth, living in Lodebar, Knowing your whole life that if they ever find you, they execute you, they kill you. All of a sudden, one day, you see a royal entourage coming. Because in Lodebar, you probably can see him coming for a good ways off. And you see a big crew of people coming. They come, they knock on your door, and they say, Are you Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul? David wants to see you. Come with us. Now, what's going through your mind if you're Mephibosheth? They found me. The day I feared all of my life has finally arrived. I've tried to hide. I've tried to keep my head under the radar. I've tried to live here in this place, and they found me. And as he was being brought, because David had called for him, as he's being brought back into Jerusalem, and he's ascending that hill that leads into Jerusalem, you know his heart is beating faster and faster. Maybe he even has childhood memories of the palace that he once lived in. As he comes into this place, as he knows that he's about to come face to face with David, going through layer upon layer of security, coming into the inner chambers where David is. And there's two expressions going on here as this interaction happens. First, there's David's face filled with joy. Because he wants anybody from the house of Saul. He couldn't believe the, the fortune, the blessing of having his actual Jonathan's son standing right there. And so what's his first words? Mephibosheth. You try saying that word five times. It doesn't always come out right. He says Mephibosheth. Because he's so excited in the flesh, bone, flesh and bone. Maybe even the spitting image of Jonathan. But then you've got Mephibosheth. Face filled with fear, 
heart pounding. It says that he fell on his face before David. Now I've fallen on my knees before. I've fallen on my backside before. I've fallen on my side. I've never fallen on my face. It sounds painful. And there that crippled man is laying on the hard, cold ground, the stone ground. He hears his name and hears his answer. Behold, I am your servant. Can you see him there with his broken ankles turned inward? Can you see him terrified laying on the ground? Can you feel the cold stone under his hands? That's where he's at because he's been told his entire life, they find you, they kill you. Today's that day. And so what does he say in response to his name? Behold, I'm your servant. I'm not a king, I'm not a prince, I'm just your servant. Look at David's incredible response. David said to him, because he could see that what was going on, he said, number one, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So see him laying on the floor there, expecting execution, and what does he hear? Do not be afraid. I'm not, I didn't seek you, find you, and bring you here because I wanted to harm you. Don't be afraid. See, what's going on in Mephibosheth's mind is he's scared because he doesn't know the intentions of the heart of David. Let me repeat that. Because he doesn't know the intentions of the heart of David, he's afraid. You may have picked up on this, but if you don't know the intentions of the heart of God, you're always going to be afraid of God. That's why you're going to try to perform. You're always going to try to impress. You're always going to try to limit what you think you're doing wrong. You don't know the heart of God, and because you don't know the heart of God, you're afraid of God. That's what's going on here, and he's afraid. And David says, no, don't be afraid. For the sake of Jonathan, I'm going to show you kindness. Huh? I always thought it was my connection to that name that was going to get me killed. You're telling me that because of Jonathan, you're going to... It's not because of me, it's because of him you're going to be kind to me? Uh-huh. Yeah. This is beautiful. Friend, hear me. You don't have to be afraid of God. His intentions toward you. He sought you. He found you. He brought you to himself so that he could be kind to you. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. It takes away the performance when we realize that God in His kindness is coming. He sought us, He found us, He brought him to himself, us to Himself for the sake of Jesus. That's why the kindness of God falls on us. That's why the kindness of David falls on Mephibosheth. And as he's hearing these words, he not only hears, don't be afraid, and it's not because of you, it's because of Jonathan. He says, and now I'm going to restore everything that was lost. Oh, <laughs> Can you picture that man laying on his, on his face going, am I hearing this right? Because I swore you just told me I'm not going to die. I'm pretty sure I heard that. And I heard that because of my father, I'm good with you. And, and you're going to restore what? Like he's grown up since the age of five in Lode Bar. He just heard you're going to live here and you're going to have everything that was lost. I'm going to restore it to you. Like, I just can imagine this guy going, I've got to be hearing this wrong. 
Because this doesn't fit the narrative that I've lived with my entire life, which was that I get found out, I get caught, I'm in trouble, I die. I'd rather live in poverty by myself if I could just live. You're now telling me I didn't have to do all that. I could have come to you and I would have found grace and mercy and kindness. And you would have restored to me what was lost. Everything lost by Adam in the garden. Jesus brought but it back. Everything lost in the garden when Adam sinned. Everything we lost, Jesus brought it back. For us, why would we live in Lode Bar? Well, you live in Lode Bar because you don't know him. See, there's something better than don't be afraid. There's something better than I'm restoring everything because of Jonathan. You know what's better than that? You're going to eat at my table every day. Golly, that would make your brains just like explode if you heard that. It's this. I'm not just bringing you home. I'm not just bringing you back. I'm bringing you to my table. You belong here. You're going to eat with me every day. We would call that communion, right? Because we have community with people. We don't sit and eat regularly with people we don't like or we don't want to sit. We sit and we have a meal and we have you know, a glass of wine or a whatever it is, a, a, a soda, whatever you're singing. We sit and we laugh and we talk and we enjoy company. We have communion. And, and what is it that he's saying? You're going to come, because in their culture, even more than ours, if you were willing to share a meal, it meant that you and I are in fellowship together. I'm bringing you in. By the way, only David can open that communion up. Mephibosheth can't do it. David has to do that. David says, hey, more than all that, you're going to eat at my table. You're going to sit like my adopted son in that spot every day. Gosh. Who wants to live in Lode Bar when you got a spot at that table? I mean, you'd have to call a person a fool if they made that choice. You'd go, what are you doing? Wow. Why? I mean, he, he's not going to kill you. He's not looking so, for you so that he can just slay you. He's looking for you because though you don't know him, your father did, Jonathan did, and we've got a higher and better Jonathan. His name is Jesus. And because of Jesus, we get the kindness of God as our own. Invited to the king's table where I will sit every day with better food than I ever had at Lode Bar, and I'll also sit with the king's sons and daughters like I was one of them, and I will sit and hear David start to tell stories about my grandfather and my father that I never knew. And I will watch I will watch the tears in his eyes as he speaks about his love for my father. And tells me that because of him, I get to sit here. Oh, friends, you are loved. Stop performing. You are wanted. Stop performing. It wasn't because of you. It wasn't because of your merit that God said, by golly, I'll go and find them and bring them home. Because, man, they, they, they earned it. 
No, Jesus earned it. And how do we know? Because look at his response. As, John, as Mephibosheth lays on that floor, hearing that, his response is, what is your servant that you should show uh, regard for a dead dog such as I? You know what he's saying? Why would you do this? I'm nobody. I mean, I, I get in my spiritual pockets to try to pay you back for all that, and all I come up with is lint. I've got nothing. There's nothing here for you, David. i got nothing. Why would you regard a dead dog such as I? Now, dogs in their culture weren't the little princelings they are now, right, with special food and all of that. Dogs were a little different in that culture. Dogs were flea-bitten, mangy, and stayed out, right? He says, I'm not a king. I'm not a prince. I am a dead dog. Why would you regard me? Now, David gives the best answer in all of Scripture to that question. King David called Ziba. Saul's servant had said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. So, so check the answer. David, why would you do this? I'm a dead dog. David's answer. Uh, bring all of this, the stuff that was his grandfather's had given to him. He basically just goes, I, Maybe you're not getting this, so it's going to take a little while. Just bring everything that used to belong to Saul and give it. And Ziba, guess what? All of your sons and all of your servants, that's about 35 people, you're going to work the land that now belongs to Mephibosheth. You're going to bring in the harvest. You're going to work the land, bring it in, but he's going to eat at my table every single day. That's the answer to the question, why would you do this? I'm just a dead dog. David looks right past the question and just starts giving the command of blessing. You guys ever, maybe, and I have to be careful when I quote movies like this, but it's a movie called No, no Country for Old Men, Cormac McCormick, um, great, great movie. The only thing better than the movie is the book. <laughs> so if you haven't read the book, I encourage you to read the book because there's a lot of things that happen in the book that I'm like, why didn't you put that in there? But there's the time where the, the sheriff, E. Tom, uh, is at the end of the book, and he said, basically, he goes to talk to his uncle, and his uncle says, I hear you're retiring. That Tom, why are you retiring? He said, I feel outmatched. I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this crazy world. Can't do it. And his uncle looks at him, and in the book, one of the best things is he says, hey, you know, there's something more going on here. And you know what the sheriff says, and I won't give away the whole movie, because if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's fine. I'm giving you a heads up. All right. But in the book, one of the things that happens that doesn't happen here is this small town sheriff who everybody lauds and says he's the great man of, of the town and the county, and that he's this noble war, World War II. Uh, he's honored in, in military honors and all of that. He's got all these awards. You know what he says in the book at the end of his life? He says... You ever done something, says to his uncle, you ever done something you're ashamed of? And you lived your whole life hoping it never got found out. And his uncle goes, oh gosh, here we go. You're about to tell me some weird, you know, thing you did, some immoral thing. He goes, no, 
It wasn't like sexual immorality. It wasn't that. He says, remember all those awards I got? Being a war hero? He said that night that me and, and, and my guys were pinned down by Nazis and we were all of them. I was the only one that survived. And, and they gave me awards for being the final survivor. He said, none of that's true. He said, the truth is that that night when I could see what was happening, that all my men were either bleeding out and about to die. I knew that as the sun went down, the Nazis were going to find me and they were going to execute me. And I ran away. I'm not a war hero. I don't deserve all the medals. I don't deserve the reputation in town as a war hero. I've lived my whole life, he says, trying to earn the medals I got for something that I actually should have been condemned for. I ran away. And they, when the army heard the whole story, they said, no, you didn't run away. You're a war hero. We need heroes. And so you're going to live with this life. You're going to accept these medals. Take these medals and go. And he said, the truth is, I've lived my whole life trying to be the man they said I was. Friends, do you understand in Christ, you have a better and truer Jonathan? When we have ourselves looking up and saying to, to God, essentially what Mephibosheth said to David, when we say, but who am I that you would regard me? You know my heart. You know I'm not good. You know I'm not as good as I ought to be. You know I'm not as good as I pretend to be. Who am I that you would give me such kindness? You know, the answer is this. You were saved by grace, not by works. Chapter 2 of Ephesians is a verse many of you know. But let me just repeat it for you here. Because this is what the Apostle Paul says also in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, it's by grace that you have been saved. Grace means God's unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it, any of it. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. Are you hearing this? God is gracious. You don't have to perform and if you don't have to perform for God, name the person who you have to perform for. For your parents, so they believe that you're a, a great person. So, Or for your spouse, so you can finally be loved. Who are you performing for if you don't have to perform for God? Are you performing for yourself? Because you feel better looking in the mirror when you've done well. Friends, God is gracious. And because He's gracious... We don't have to prove ourselves. There's joy in that truth. There's rest in that truth. You ever been so tired that you realized that a nap wasn't going to fix it? Like you're just so exhausted that taking a nap would almost be like, that's not going to help. It's not going to help. You know what you're, you're actually saying? I need, I need spiritual rest. I, I don't just need a nap. I need my inner man, my inner being to rest to exhale, to say, ah, that's what I long for. Well, who can give you that? Only Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The work for your salvation is finished. And here's something beautiful. 
He called you to himself from eternity past. Every failing, every setback, every blow it, he saved you with full knowledge of those two, of your failings, of your worst day. He saved you knowing all of that from eternity past. You can't blow it now. His grip on you is tighter than your grip on him. He won't let go. Sure sounds good. You know when somebody's really starting to understand the gospel, right? Is when they say, that sounds too good to be true. I'm like, ha <laughs> now, now you're finally starting to get it. It's so good, God's love for us in Christ. It's just so good that you kind of say, I don't think anything like this has ever happened to me. And every time I got told something like this, it turned out to be some kind of scam. So this sounds too good to be true. I'm like, well, this time it is true. Now, how do I know that? We'll keep watching my story unfold here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. After saying to Ziba, guess what? You and all your sons and your servants are going to work the land for uh, Mephibosheth. It says, now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. In verse 10, now verse 11, Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. Now, Hear this and underline this. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Like one of the king's sons. I bet that took some getting used to. I mean, if you lived your whole life eating turnips or whatever they had out there by yourself, and now all of a sudden you're sitting there listening to these king's sons and daughters laugh and tell stories and eat and drink. How long would it take for you to feel like you belong there? It might take more than a day or two. But he sat there every day until he believed that he belonged there. And it says, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. And he ate always at the king's table. Please catch the last line. Now, he was lame in both of his feet. Wasn't that a little unnecessary? Why are you going to bring that up again? I mean, he's making sport of him. What are we, why are we going to keep pointing that out? I mean, it's important that he points this out. That means every time he went to the king's table, someone had to pick him up and take him there. Because he couldn't take himself. Couldn't get there by himself. He couldn't get from Lode Bar to Jerusalem. And guess what? He couldn't get from his room to the table without somebody bringing him there. Friends, hear me now. You can't get to the Father's table by your merits. You're going to have to be brought there every single time by the grace of God through Jesus Christ for you. I know that sometimes you feel better about approaching God when you've been more disciplined, when you've been more godly, when you've been more patient. You feel like you can go into the throne room of God because you've been reading your Bible. Or you've been sharing the gospel. Or you've been a part of Bible study. And man, so you kind of feel like, hey, God, what's up? I'm here. Friends, <laughs> you didn't get there because you were better. If you were better, you didn't need a Savior. You need a Savior. You've got a Savior. I need a Savior. Don't imagine for a moment that because I've been to cemetery that I don't need a Savior or that I've done ministry for all these years. That's, that I, I need Him more now than I ever did before. I just know it now. 
I need his patience. I need his mercy. I need him to invite me back to his table. Because if I don't sit at his table and eat the living bread, the bread of life, and drink the living water, if I don't sit at his table and say, Father, remind me again. Let my brothers and sisters remind me again of how Jesus is my merit, how good he is. Remind me. Say it again. Because I tend to forget it. If I don't eat that, oh, I'll find somewhere to eat. I'll find something to eat. Are you tracking with this? If you don't fill your soul with the truth and the grace and the goodness of God, you'll fill your soul with something. You'll try to go to work and get that affirmation. You'll try to uh, lose 10 pounds and get that affirmation. You'll try to eat more because it numbs you and makes you not feel the pain. So you're distracted. So you'll eat and you'll turn on something on Netflix or something like that. You'll just try to get away from it. That's eating. That's all you're doing. You're just eating. You're just trying to find satisfaction outside of God. And you're always performing. It's exhausting. You know what I'd say? Stop living in Lode Bar. Come on back to Jerusalem. Sit at the king's table. You know, we're, we do this thing called gospel community. And why do we do gospel community? Listen, we want you to know God in salvation, and we want you to know him in life. And then we want you to believe the gospel, because once you sit in God's presence, and you start to hear that the gospel is something that you're supposed to eat from every day, you're going to become a vessel of grace. You're going to start loving people. You're just gonna, you're gonna do what David did. God, you've been so good to me. Is there anybody I can show your kindness to? So I want you to join us for gospel community because I want you to know the truth about God and I want you to believe the gospel and I want you to start loving people. And I wanna see this room so full that we're trying to figure out how to do another service because this is the longing of every heart of every resident in Georgetown, whether they know it or not. God is so good. He's just so good. And that's why we take communion every week. Because we need to be reminded again that we've been invited into this fellowship, not by our merits, but by the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to have one more song that we sing. And we're going to take communion together. And friends, I just want you to please hear me. Dial in. If you're, if you're daydreaming, you need to come back right now, okay? Whatever truth God gave you this morning, hold it. Pray about it. Take the thing that he said to you this morning, draw it near to your chest, and pray about it. Okay? Otherwise, you'll forget about this stuff before lunch today. So let's just take a moment and let's pray.